Did you guys notice that, you know, we left the song on for the first, you know, hey, am I on? Yeah. I'm on? I'm on, yeah. Uh, did you guys notice that we sang that first song? They, uh, and, and then the music was still on. Right in the middle, in the silence, it said, Satan is a liar. Anybody else hear that? Was that just me? I'm trying to figure out what God's trying to tell us in the midst of that, other than Satan is a liar. I feel like that was a message, you know, we needed to hear. That's not a joke. I'm really just thinking that loud as I'm talking about that. Uh, you know, my, my mom, I just think um, every time we... The, probably the closest to like being high or anything like that my mom will ever get is when all her children are home and she just gets this look on her face like she's just she could never be happier you know like she's just nostalgic and uh, if you have kids maybe you get that I, I don't I don't I don't totally get it yet um, but when all four children happen to be in the same place it's like this magical place that she goes to and uh, I was just thinking about that this morning because I I look across and most people that I know to be a part of church family are, are here today, and uh, and I it, it really is this like when you're not here, I don't, don't want to like guilt you into not ever missing you know because I missed like two weeks ago or something, but it is it is nice you know and you realize when you miss people for a couple weeks you know you really kind of begin to miss them and so um, yeah I'm glad that you're here today. Again I don't know what I'm talking about I'm just going on and on I just get up here and start talking and eventually I get to something I've written down here. Um, so uh, I grew up in a house with all brothers. Uh, my little sister came when I was uh, 13, so she just kind of came into like this crazy thing. But house with uh, mostly all brothers. When I went to my dad's, it was all guys there. And uh, we were raised, we competed for everything. So if, if you happen to see like a dollar on the ground, we just raced for it. And we battled and we probably knocked over things that cost well more than a dollar. It caused all kind of damage. And, uh, but we competed for every single thing. If my mom bought the good ice cream, we usually bought the generic. But if she bought the good ice cream, you just ate like two bowls a day for the next three days. Because if you didn't, then your brother was going to eat two bowls a day for the next three days. And you were going to get none of the good ice cream. And so we competed for everything. It worked pretty well for me until uh, Jess and I started dating. <laughs> And then, you know, when you get your, your first, you know, first serious girlfriend and we're in high school and they begin to realize that with her, I don't need to compete for everything. And so, um, you know, uh, I'm beginning to learn this, but the, the time that I remember that it first really connected with me, uh, and, and she totally remembers this too, but, but we, were, uh, we, we were sharing a meal at McDonald's, you know, like sharing the dollar menu meal, two burgers, one fry, three nineteen for the total. So we're sharing this meal. That's what kind of boyfriend I was, my life. But we're sharing this meal, and, uh, and I'm eating the fries. And you know, when you got brothers and you get fries and you're sharing them, you're not really sharing them. You're getting to the bottom as fast as possible. And so I'm eating them, and I'm, I'm putting them down, and she's like getting a drink or something. And I get all the way, and there's, and there's two fries left. I grab them. I, I'm, they're like in my mouth, and I realize I've eaten every single fry. <laughs> and I'm like, and then I, I see her. And I realized uh, she's not going to have any fries. <laughs> and so I got it halfway down, and I'm like, and I was going to like take it back <laughs> and put it back in. And she catches me doing that. And I can tell that we're having this moment where she realizes that I've realized that I've eaten them all. And rather than she would be mad at me totally for that now. But back then, it was like a sweet moment where it's like you're finally remembering that, you know, I exist too. And, <laughs> and, uh, and it was pretty cool. But... Um, 
I, I, throughout my marriage, you know, I've gotten a little smarter since then. Uh, March 25th would have marked us being together. We kind of, uh, when we started dating long ago, it been 16 years. So, sorry, March 25th. Yeah. So, I'm 32, so now I've been together for half my life. That was a, a real moment. We marked the occasion by drinking coffee separately on our way to work. That's what we did. Um, so, yeah, we didn't do anything. But throughout my marriage, I, I've come to realize that if I will give her the, the first things, then life will be much better for me. Um, uh, if I want to, to go fishing and I really want to go and I want to go and not, like, get the side eye, you know, I don't want to get the... I want to get the real, yeah, go fishing. Not the, yeah, go fishing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like the same words, but it means something totally different. If I want to get the good one, uh, I can get the good one if I spend some quality time and I take the garbage out. I take the garbage out first, you know, rather than saying I'll do it when I get back. I cut the grass rather than saying I'll do it when I get back. I spend all the good family time, and then I can go fishing, and I can really... It can really happen. And, uh, and, and I used to have this mentality, forgive me if I'm bursting this for you guys, but I used to have this mentality that what I was doing is I'm building up credits that I'm later cashing in. And so if I build up enough credits, fishing is, is like a half day of fishing is like all the credits I ever have in the bank. No matter how many there are, I'm cashing them all in. If I'm, uh, if I'm just going for a couple minutes... You know, then, then it's different. If I can go fish with someone, I can tell her, well, this person really needs Jesus, and so this is my place to connect. And I'm only cashing in half my credits then because I'm also doing something good. But, but I, I've come to realize I've put my wife in this really bad place, and I'm, I'm glad she's not in here when I have to admit it, but I put my wife in this bad place where really she just wanted to spend good time with me and know that she was first. And I perceive that as I have to do certain things so that I can do the things that I want to do. <laughs> and that was not, not very fair for her. But um, I was going to say that the, the great part of doing this for me this morning when she's in here is that I'm earning credit so I can cash in later. I'm just kidding. I really didn't learn a lesson. Um, but, but that's how I just kind of learned that if, I, if, if I'm a good husband... And I really, and, and, I am, and I am investing in her and investing in that relationship. Um, everything else in life is much better for me. And when I'm not doing that, no matter how good work is and no matter how good church is and no matter how, how well the fish are biting or no matter what else is going well, if I'm not investing in that, then it's not going well. No matter how good everything else seems to be. So last week we talked about that idea, that whole idea of first fruits, and the idea of first fruits in relationships, and giving that stuff first to God. Last week we talked about time, we talked about giving God our time very first, and the first thing that we're going to do when we begin to appropriate our calendar is say, where am I spending time with the Father? And then today we go to the one that, that every pastor loves, and all the people love, and, uh, and, and some pastors really do love it way too much. Um, but today we talk about giving God our money first, right? That's everybody's favorite, I know, because you're expecting me to have a coat and be like, and so now, come give me the money, you know? And, uh, and I'm going to get a new car and all that kind of stuff. And I did get a new car, and I feel bad about it all the time, every time I preach about money. Um, but, but we're talking about money. But, but here's where I have to begin. This is what is crucially important for me. Is, is to say that before we begin this discussion, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, 
Hold your money. And if it, even if it was a really big check, you keep it. And we could probably do some, some good things for it. But Jesus says the idea of the tithe is that, is that what I'm getting is your heart. And if you haven't first given me your heart, I'm not interested in that money. And so I would say first and foremost, chiefly above all, if you have not chosen to follow Jesus, begin there. That's the first place. Don't begin by, by saying, you know, I'm going to begin to give some money and then I'm going to ease my way into the rest of it um, because maybe I've got some that's expendable or I'll get in God's good graces. No, none of it works like that. Begin this journey, if you haven't said yes to Jesus, by doing that. Saying, Jesus, I, I fully believe that you're the Savior and that you died for me and I follow you. And begin in that place. And no, no sermon where we talk about money is complete or has even begun if we don't begin by saying that you can't buy anything from God. Because grace is an absolutely free gift. So here we go, Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. If you turn to Malachi, it's the last book in the Old Testament. So if you're flipping over there... And, and you see Malachi chapter 3, you can turn two pages to the right, and you'll notice that that's the very end of the Old Testament. And, and even if you've got some commentary, you turn another page or two, and you'll notice that, that now you're in Matthew, now you're in the New Testament. And what took you just a, a couple seconds to do actually uh, spanned 400 years in real time. And so there's 400 years between when Malachi speaks to, to all these Israelites and when the next prophet comes. It's the widest gap in prophecy that, that these people have ever known. And in a time when the primary way that God spoke to his people was through the prophets, they went through an incredibly long time without hearing from anybody. The next prophet that they hear from is John the Baptist, and very soon after that, Jesus comes. And so it's an incredibly long time span. 400 years later, we find these same people, and now they're living under Roman rule, and they're sort of captive again, but in a different way. So a whole lot of stuff happened in between. And so it's pretty interesting to see the, the last prophecy given to these guys in, in, in what is the end of, of the old Israelite world as we know it. And so this is kind of the last thing that is said to them really before John the Baptist comes and Jesus comes. If you remember from last week, so this is the, last week we talked about this group of exiles that, that went back and were supposed to rebuild the temple and they didn't do a very good job. And then this guy named Haggai came in and he preached to them and they responded really well and he was, he was this great preacher and he moved everybody and, and man, it was just incredible. And, and, and they decided to, to follow God and then a hundred years later, you pick up here. And they did really great for a little while, but a hundred years later we found them right back in the exact same spot. And it's the same group of exiles, and, and they're still struggling again. And Haggai, Haggai did that. Malachi comes in 100 years later, and we pick up in verse 7. All right, Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Hey, don't catch that, by the way. If somebody wrongs you all the time, is the first thing you say to them, you wrong me all the time. You do the worst things to me. You're the worst person always when it comes to me. But you know what? If you'll just return to me, I'll return to you. Doesn't that, doesn't that little phrase speak a whole lot into the nature of God? That's the first thing he says to them. And then they ask, 
the end of verse 7, but you ask, how are we to return? Like, like where did we go? What did we do so wrong? Verse 8, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. And they ask, but how are we robbing you? You know what reminds me? You know, they're sort of like baffled. They're like, but God, where did we go wrong? How are we robbing you? It's like God's telling them all these things they're doing, and they're like, we didn't do that. It reminds me of uh, my, my students all the time will say, they'll fail a test, and they'll say, I studied. And I'm like, no. At first I'll say, well, you failed because you didn't study. Oh, I studied. <laughs> and I'll say, well, you know, you, you had your head down on your desk, your eyes were closed, and you had earbuds in. And so, I mean, I don't call that study. Oh, that's not a study. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's like, it's like I'm sitting there and I'm like, you know, nothing's sort of coming through. And I'm having to explain things that I feel like shouldn't really have to be explained. I think that's kind of where God is. In verse 8, he says, this is where you've robbed me, the very end of that passage. He says, in tithes and offerings. In tithes and offerings. That's where you've robbed me. Verse 9, you are under a curse. Your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will, be, that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your field will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. If you remember from last week, God's doing the exact same thing. He's like, look, I'm withholding things to get your attention because you're withholding things from me. Verse 13, you have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? And again, God says, you did something wrong. And they say, we didn't do anything wrong. What did we do? Verse 14, you have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out His requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they'll get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord. So this is how they finished up. And this lasted for just a little bit. But verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in His presence, concerning those who feared the Lord and honored His name. So the first thing God says to him is, God says to all these people is, is He says, you're robbing me. And I think He would say the same thing to us if He could come here, and I would love for Him to come and say a lot of great things to us, but the first thing that I think would be true of us is that so often we're robbing God. And you say, but how do we do that? Here's the idea. Imagine, put yourself in this scenario. So let's say there's, there's somebody that you kind of know, and they, um, they, they put you in their will. And they say they've got, they're going to die soon, they put you in their will, and they're going to give you $100,000. And they say, the only thing you've got to do when you get my 100000 is you've got to give me back, you've got to give away $10,000. you got to give this 10000 to somebody else, but you keep the other ninety. And then let's say you get the money, and you're like, you know what, I'm not giving away this ten. I got this fair and square. It was given to me. I don't have to do it, and so I'm going to keep it. And if any of the rest of us know about this deal that you've made, we would all agree that you have not, you have not been faithful. You were given a lot that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. It's not really yours. It was a gift to you. And the only condition was that you give a little away. You have not been faithful. And this is the same idea. 
And the idea is that God gives us everything that we have. And when we hold back some of that, we're robbing from Him what is His already. And sometimes this is the way I feel, very sinfully. And I know that sometimes this is probably the way that you might think. But, but, but some of us think, if we're honest with ourselves, well, really God didn't earn the skill. God didn't go to college. Uh, I didn't see Him there studying with me. That was just me in the library. He didn't do those things. He didn't help me meet the deadline. He didn't do any of those things for me. And in this moment, I would point you back to that part in the passage that says, you have been very arrogant. And I think that's what's true of me when I begin to think like that. Is, Man, I've been so incredibly arrogant. Again, I want to remind you that I'm talking to people that have committed their life to Jesus. Because he says, you and I have committed our life to Jesus. We are the people that should have ears to hear this. And if it makes you angry, that's good. That thing's called conviction. And it's designed to pull us back to him. The idea is God gave you the limbs and the ability to, to take advantage of the opportunity. And he gave you a brain and he gave you all those things. And should he desire, he could take it away from you just as quickly. See this story in the Bible about a guy named Job. He'll confirm all that. And he's a guy who probably would have said, you know what, uh, I got rich because I'm a hard worker. I got rich because I'm really smart. That's why I've got all the stuff that I've got. And then at the end of the book, I bet you he would tell you, you know, really it's all God's. He has it and he can take it away just as easy. And he begins to recognize this reality that it all belongs to God. And if we begin with that perspective that it all belongs to him and not giving it back to him is really stealing it from him, um, then we probably have a pretty good starting place for the whole discussion. So, so what I want to do, I, I want to address some of these reasons that we, that I, kind of justify this in our own mind. And these are some really great reasons. And some ones that I have really relied on sometimes and I really wasn't a very good giver. I'll start with a real churchy one, and then I'll get into some other ones. But if you're real churchy, you consider yourself to be really churchy. And, and, and you want, uh, this is maybe one that you've said before. This is one I hear a lot. Uh, well, I'm under grace, and, and so I'm not under the law. And so what that means is I don't have to give the 10%. Maybe it's just, not all of you may be privy to this conversation, but, but, but here's the idea. So, so maybe you have heard, I want to address this idea of a tithe. 10%. Is that how much you should give? So, so here's an idea. You ever, heard, uh, you ever heard pastors, you may not be privy to that whole conversation, but you've heard a, a pastor or somebody talk about you giving 10%, and that's the amount that you should give. When I was growing up, my pastor said, you give 10% to the church, and then after you've given that, you've got to give that whole 10. You give it, and, and you, the church does with it whatever they want. You'll designate it for anything. And then if you want to give to anything else, then you give a little extra out of, out of, out of something extra for can you imagine that? Do the math. Get your phone calculator out and take your gross salary and, and multiply that, you know, carry the decimal and all that, and multiply that by 10%. And then you'll begin to see, some of you are like, well, let me go ahead and pack up <laughs> because I just don't have that in my budget. Um, here's where that idea comes from. And some of you, if you consider yourself church, you probably already know this, um, comes from this Old Testament idea. And, and so it's, it's, it's all through there, but, but they would call them to give 10% to the priest and to the ministry so that, so that priest would have the opportunity to eat and they could take care of the temple and all that kind of thing. So they would give 10%, not, not of money, but of, of whatever they grew. Um, if, if money happened to be 
um, if, if they lived too far and they couldn't bring a whole bunch of lambs and that kind of thing all the way to the temple, then they could sell it and get money and bring the money. But they gave 10% of, of whatever they raised or whatever their goods were. And then they gave another 10% for the poor and some other purposes like that. And then they gave another like 10% after some of that stuff was left once a year and uh, kind of came out to like another 3%. So really they gave like 23% these. That, that was what the Old Testament law commanded. And about 13% of that was probably what we would today call taxes. And so that was the kind of things that, that our government supposedly does with our taxes. And then the other 10% was really directly to the church. If you, if you want to dig for some of this, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Malachi passage we just read, man, that's, that's a lot of 10% stuff in there. And, and that's, what, that's what tithe is. It's like a tenth. And so that's kind of where we pull that number from. The one problem with, with administering this, and look, I know what my pastor, you know, look, and I don't think he was doing this at all, but, you know, if I was pulling my whole salary from the money that you gave, I'd be real weary of saying you're giving 10% now. You don't really have to do that. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you really duck that down, you know, and now I don't have enough money and now we can't make salary and all that. I mean, there's some real fear there. And, and I know a whole lot of real faithful people that, 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 that lead it and really see this. But here's a problem for me about saying to you, you should be giving 10% bar none. There's another passage right almost in line with most of this where what people were, were bringing uh, in addition to their 10% was the firstborn of their flock and, 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 the, and there was animal sacrifice and the priest was sacrificing that animal. And so if, we're gonna, if I'm going to require you to bring 10%, then I guess I'm going to have to apply that whole law pretty liberally too. And, and so what I'm telling you is don't you dare bring a lamb up here for me to have to, you know, do all that stuff with, right? Because we're not doing that. And if we're going to be fair with the Scripture, if we're going to take that one out, and we're not just doing it because we don't want to do that anymore, we probably have to be fair with, with all the rest of it. There's a lot more to that argument. We can dig into it another day. But in short, the, the New Testament, the new covenant, that when Jesus came, he said, I fulfilled the covenant, I fulfilled the old covenant, and now we're in the new covenant. And some of what that says is, is in replacing some of that. And these ideas are in First and Second Corinthians. So all digging through there in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, 8th and 9th chapter of 2 Corinthians, uh, kind of gives us some guidelines for how we're supposed to give. And so when I dig through, if I'm going to summarize some of those, I think it looks like this. The first thing is the way that we give is, is, is the first thing that we should be doing is asking God what we should give. You know, in the same way that we say, God, what do you want me to do? I don't know what to do. You know, when you've got some other situation that you're facing, we begin by saying, God, what do you want me to give? And the answer is something like this. Number one is, is give according to what you have. And some of you are like, easy. <laughs> that would just let me totally off the hook. I don't have anything extra. So therefore... This one's pretty easy for me. All right, we'll, we'll jump into that in a minute. But the second one is, is, is this. And there's this idea in Scripture of giving sacrificially. And if your giving doesn't require you to give anything up, God says that's not a good gift. And that's not the way to do it. Now, the other thing is that you'll see in these passages about some New Testament giving is that we're supposed to give cheerfully. And here's what God actually says. He says, if you're not giving cheerfully, see, see man looks at the outward appearance. We, we literally, we look at the, the check that you write. You know, that, that's the part that we see. But God says, I don't see the amount. Not does really matter to me. What I'm looking at is your heart. 
And so if you're going to give so incredibly begrudgingly, man, you keep that. You keep it because that's, that's not the kind of gift that God is interested in. That's not a gift that brings him glory. And that's not a gift that makes him happy. And so the idea of New Testament giving is that we are people that are, that are giving faithfully, that, that, are, that are giving sacrificially, and we are people that are enjoying giving that stuff. That's some of the idea that we see in Scripture. So um, before you go invoking that, that grace clause and saying, well, I'm under grace, so I don't really have to give 10%, which means that I end up not giving anything, I would ask you, are you sacrificing anything in order to give? Are you sacrificing anything in order to give? And, and, and are you even asking God what you should give? Are you excited and cheerful when you give? When you can say yes to those three things, then we'll get to the idea of how much you should be giving and all that kind of thing. So that's one excuse that I hear. Here's another one that, that I have done often. How about this one? Maybe you've said this. I can't afford to tithe. I can't afford to give to the church. I'll tell you God's response first. God's response is, well, actually, you can't afford not to. The grapes are falling too soon, so you're not able to harvest those. The skies are withholding rain. Modern-day translation, the business isn't coming in. We're sorry to inform you, but we're going in another direction. We're exploring other opportunities. The idea is, is, is God is saying, Whitman, when you withhold that from me, I'm withholding things from you because I want you to come back to me. You can't afford not to be a giver. You may say, man, even still, I just I, I don't have it. I can't give out of my first fruits. I can't give out of my last fruits. I need all the fruit right now. I need all of it. I don't have any extra. My wife, my husband, my kids, they spend it all. There's nothing left. Trust me. I'll show you my bank account. There's not much in there. Maybe that's true. Two things I'd say to that. This is a challenging one for me, but, but if you're... If you're kid needed medicine and it costs 10%, 5% of your income, would you find a way to get it? And a lot of times we're like, yeah, I'd find a way. We'd just find a way. That's what we do. We'd find a way. And I would say that then you probably have more discretionary income than you might think if it was really a priority for us. If you're single, maybe you're single, and if your salary was reduced by 5%, 10%, 1%, would you die? Would you die? Like, like it would dry up. You would have no money for food, and then you would die. You would live under the bridge, and, and that's, that's just how life would be. And if that's not the case, then you probably have more discretionary income than you might think. I know a lot of people, they talk about being poor. They drink a lot of Starbucks. And look, I'm, I'm not a master of economics, but I do know that those cost money. And so sometimes it's just a matter of the things that we prioritize. Um, if you would die, by the way, let me give you a clause. If you would die, if you're like, yeah, I would die. <laughs> I actually have no extra. I would totally die. Then I would say, um, you know, start with like a penny. You know, start with a dollar. You, I bet you can find a dollar. If you just look hard enough, you could probably find four quarters. You know, like in those gra grab a penny, have a penny, take a penny, you know. You just always take a penny. You can begin there. <laughs> but the idea is we can usually find some place to get started. I have a friend that, that pastors a church, and they have a whole lot of college kids. And so what happens is every fall and spring when the college kids are in, they go from like 200 to 400. And then when the college kids are out, they go back down to 200. And he said the interesting thing is um, they get their, their church doubles in size, but they get no extra money. 
there's no extra money comes in when all the college kids are in because the college kids are like, well, we don't have any money, so we're not giving. And so they're all in the church where there's no extra giving. This is a pretty interesting thing. I read a big article this week. I dug way too deep into it. But, um, but one of the things that it said is high school kids and college kids have more discretionary income than their adult peers. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> Well, because high school kids and college kids, you know, they, they're, the money that you get, and look, some of you, you know, you're like, not true for me. But, but the idea is, is, is when we get older, a few different things happen, but, but our money goes to different places. And so most high school kids and college kids, actually, the money that you get, you get to do what you want with it, often, at least a better part of it than when you get older. And so there's just this idea that we're constantly telling ourselves that we don't have it. And the reality is that often we've got a little bit more than we think we do. You've got five bucks from Mocha Soy Latte. <laughs> I don't know if that's even a real thing. Colby can tell me if that's real. That sounds right to me. Um, but if you've got five bucks for that, you probably got five bucks of discretionary income that you can begin to give. And I'm not telling you to do absolutely nothing for yourself. I'm just asking you to think about the notion that you have nothing. So if you have $600 sunglasses, if you've got a $100 rod and reel, if you've got a $1,500 house note, which probably means you live in a pretty decent house, if you've got some of those kinds of things, if you're going on vacation next year, this year, but you can't, but in the midst of all that, you can't find the resources to give, and you, you openly call yourself a believer, you say you responded in faith to Jesus, if, that's, if both of those are true of you, then what God says is you are robbing me. You have become a thief. You're robbing me of the things that are due to me. Here's the one thing I'll say. If you're living on credit, and every month you dip a little deeper into the credit, I will say that don't fool yourself. You've been telling yourself you have discretionary income, but you don't. You don't actually have any extra. And, and, and in that case, I would say, get to a place of, of financial peace. Maybe you got to do something really crazy like sell your house. Maybe you don't have any equity there, so that's not a good idea. Maybe you need to drive a crappier car. And as you begin to make the changes to get to that place, a lot $5 towards, towards giving, so you can just begin to establish some of that habit. If you're offended and you're not a believer, don't be. Don't be offended, right? I'm just talking within your earshot. But if you are, then that's really good. That's the beginning of the way God works in our lives. Uh, here's, another, uh, here's another one that I hear, another excuse I hear pretty often. And this one is, is very real. And uh, it's my family's not on board. And, and I can't speak to all that, but I'll say this. Are you really on board? Are you actually making sacrifices? Are you giving up something to give the space away for giving? I used to, sometimes I used to, um, I used to talk to Jess and we weren't giving very much. And I would say, you know, we really should give more. And, and, and meanwhile, I'm, I'm eating out for lunch every day and I'm just spending real frivolously. And I'm asking Jess to make a sacrifice that I'm not willing to make on my own end. And so, so that's a real big question to ask yourself. If you feel like nobody else is on board, the question is, are you really on board? Are you on board for making some of those sacrifices? Is your faithful living encouraging them to also be faithful? And when you can say yes to that, then we'll address some of the rest of that. Here's what some people say. This one, uh, this one's my favorite, especially because my wife used to work for the IRS. Um, 
Some people say, uh, well, I tithe my time instead. So you try to tell the IRS, like, I'm not giving you any of my money, but I'm going to give you 28% of my time. 28%. 15%, 28%. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you what. They're not going to go for it. You know what their slogan is? We've got what it takes to take what you've got. And they're going to take what you've got because they're not going to go for that. You try telling uh, Sally Mae that you're, you're not going to pay them back, but you're going to give them 10% of all the time that you have. And you see, that doesn't fly anywhere. It's not good here. It's not good anywhere. It's not good with your children. I'm not going to give you money for a new car. I'm not going to give you money for your cell phone bill, but I'm going to spend 10% of my time with you. <laughs> that's the exact opposite of what they ask for. That is, that's, that's just an excuse to me that's just sort of a cop-out. Another excuse, this one I wish wasn't so true, but sometimes it really is. When people say this, I just sometimes kind of shrug because unfortunately it's reality. Some people say churches aren't very good with money. And oftentimes they just can't be trusted. Man, I cringe. I cringe every time some some new pastor comes comes to light and he's swindled money from the church or he's got the nicest car of anybody there. He's got the biggest house of anybody there. And it's pretty clear that people are giving money to the church and it's kind of like a funnel right to his bank account. I hate that stuff. Because it gives people even a better, it just puts fuel in the fire for the idea that we don't do good things. I'll tell you exactly what we do with your money when you go here. Mostly because numbers are really small. <laughs> um, here's exactly what we do. I get $200 a month. Colby gets $200 a month. Robbie gets $200 a month. That's what we do. You three pastors get $200 a month. I know it's a lot. Um, we take $200 a month. We used to not do any of those. We thought as we begin to grow, what if, you know, we, we just want to begin to build those things into the budget. So, so we do that. The idea is that in time, you know, um, maybe you'll, this church will be able to support one full-time pastor, you know, or at least a part-time pastor, and that money will actually begin to open up some space for that person to be able to have the time to do what it takes, you know, the same way that your job pays you so that you can actually be there. So that's kind of the idea of putting that in the budget. We pay VFW $800 a month. They get $800 a month, and so that's why we're able to meet here. Um, we, and then we have about an extra $6,000. That's what we had last year. And, and for that $6,000 over the course of the whole year, it goes towards missions giving, buying things for the ministry, benevolence, stuff like that. That's where 100% of the money goes. And, and so we don't have enough to really create a scandal. <laughs> But I, want to, I just want it to be really clear that that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing with the money. But here's where that thing kind of bothers me sometimes. Here's where that whole idea is kind of a challenge for me. If you went to a bad restaurant, you wouldn't be like, you know what, I'm not eating anymore. I'm not eating anymore. Restaurants serve bad food, so I'm quitting eating. No, you just find some, some new place to go. The Saints were bad for 30 years. 30 years, but we didn't all quit watching football. Some people did. But collectively, we didn't all quit watching football. No, we just recognize that sometimes things are bad, but that doesn't mean that all things are bad. And so that's why sometimes that excuse falls on deaf ears for me because it's, it's this idea of saying it's all bad because one is bad. But I will tell you this, if a church would never tell you where the money's going or, or, or never wants to be open about any of that kind of thing, then that's not a place that I would go because that's probably happening there. <coughs> 
The very last excuse that I've used before that I feel like often goes very unsaid is this part right here. This kind of goes unsaid, but it kind of hangs in the back of our mind. What does the church really need with it anyway? What does the church really need with the money anyway? Uh, at least in this church, our pastors make a living somewhere else, and they seem to be doing okay, so, so we got that going for it. The Red Cross does disasters. Lots of groups feed the hungry. We shouldn't need to fundraise just so we can do some good things. Right? Didn't that, didn't that seem like some reality? And you know what I always think about in reference to that? Nobody looks now on the American Cancer Society for like soliciting funds to do the work. Because we all recognize that, that they probably need some money to, to solve that problem. So I think the bigger issue is what do we see as a real problem? We see cancer as a very real problem. That's a problem that we may need to put some money towards to begin to solve. But the idea that every day people live and die apart from Jesus doesn't often feel like a real present problem. Certainly not something that we would spend the time to invest in. And so this question is more about what do we prioritize rather than how much do we have. Temporal, earthly problems, like the fact that my heated seats went out, the home button on my iPhone quit working. By the way, you don't have to have it, I've learned. You can get around it. And those are real problems. But if I can't give, but I can solve those problems, probably just means that I have a heart issue rather than a financial issue. Here, and I hope that in every church, it's not always the case, but in every church that loves the Lord, your, your money goes towards one chief primary concern. It goes towards creating time and platforms for people to be served and for people to hear and respond to the gospel. That's what we're doing with money. And that's it. And if we're ever doing anything other than that, then may God shut us down supernaturally. Because that's all we're going to do. Um, here's a reality that I think we should finish with. Number one, I want to tell you this. Um, there are a few things that I almost never preach on. This is one of them because I never want to be, I, I, I just, I don't want anyone to come and say, oh, this is what they're really all about. I don't want to give you a platform for that. And the second thing is I don't always preach on it because let's be honest, it's pretty challenging. And, and it means for me right now, it probably means that I need to evaluate how much I give and that's pretty painful. And it's just a hard topic. But, but the reason that I do it is because if I'm going to preach everything that's in Scripture, I just can't skip this one. And trust me, there are other things that are really hard too. There's some other topics, man, that are incredibly challenging for me. But this is one of them. But if we're going to tell you, if we're going to be faithful to tell you everything that Scripture tells you and we skip over this one, right, then we haven't done that. But here's the reality I think we should finish with. <laughs> God, Scripture tells us this. He is excited, excited. The Bible calls it joyful. And, and the word, when you, when, you, when you see that passage that said, God loves a cheerful giver, the idea is, is, is God takes great joy. That kind of love is like an exceeding enjoyment. God really enjoys a cheerful giver. He's excited to bless the giver. See, God's not up there like, man, I've got a lot of projects to do. Let me see how much we have. Oh, we don't quite have enough. Let me convict some pastors to preach about money, and then we'll, you know, refill the well, and then we'll get some of these things done. Now, like, that's not how God works at all. Uh, instead, God is, is saying, 
I love it when my people are faithful. I love it when they hold nothing from me. And that's what he loves about when we give. Is in this day and age, it's the ultimate way of saying, God, everything that I have is yours. So I hope you walk away doing this. I hope if you're a Christian, you walk away slightly offended and, and also challenged to, to begin to, to evaluate your income. All the things that you say you can't do, all the things that you buy, I hope you evaluate that and I hope you work towards being a sacrificial, cheerful giver. And it's not tied to a percentage. And if you're living in debt, I think you have some other priorities to, if you're, if you're expending more than you're making every month, maybe you, you start with $5 just so you can establish the habit and fix some other things before you sort of up some of that. But I hope you walk away saying, I recognize that if I'm going to be a faithful follower of God, this has to be a part of my life. I hope you begin to do that. And if you're not a Christian, or you're just a guest, and, and maybe you are, but you just haven't been here very, very much, and, and we hit this really soon, and you sort of walk with us, I hope that you, you walk away saying, man, this gospel thing, this idea of following Jesus must be incredibly important. Because these people are actually willing to give up their money just so other people can hear about it. They're actually willing to give up their money for people that may hate them just so that they can hear the gospel. That's pretty incredible because that, that's not something that I would want to give my money away to. I hope you begin to see how much we value that. I hope it causes you to do a double take and say, do I have that? Have I really responded to Jesus' call to follow him? Have I really dug into that? Have I really said, Jesus, I fully believe that you are the Savior and I follow you? Because without that, trust me, you're losing the ears to hear. And all of this sounds like something that you may not be that interested in. I pray that this whole conversation for you just points you there. Points you to new life in Jesus. Let me pray. God, I praise you for this morning. Um, I thank you for, on a personal level, um, I thank you for the opportunity to preach and, and how much I love it and for this calling you've put on my life to, to be a pastor. And I thank you even when it's a real challenge. I still say thank you. I'm so grateful for that opportunity. And God, I pray that we would be people that from our time to our money to our family, we would be people that hold nothing back from you. And say, God, whether it's 10 minutes or whether it's, it's, it's my whole job that I'm changing or whether it's $5 or whether it's $1,000, God, I, I, I just want to give you exactly what you called me to give. And I pray that I would be so faithful, recognizing that everything in this life passes away to give you everything that I have. I pray that we would be people that would be faithful to do that. We love you, Jesus. In your name, we lift up everything we said today. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we continue to worship today.